Amen, amen. All right. And we really do believe that this area of volunteering and our, our as, as Joy shared, our biggest need is in the kids ministry. There's some other needs that we have. But as God has said, uh, you know, as it's become apparent that moving to one service for a season is going to require more volunteerism because we have a lot of people that will serve one service and volunteer or serve one service and then be in a service. And that's no longer a possibility. And so we just need extra volunteers and feel like that's not only a byproduct of going to one service, but that's actually part of the intention of God, uh, that we would be a people that, uh, that, that serve the body, thus giving us more ownership and like, oh, this is my family. This is the church. This is my church. And so um, we believe that that's actually the intention of God and not just like something that has to happen to make something else happen, if that makes sense. And so uh, with that this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series on family, and we're really beginning this year looking at family and, and then mission, because we're, we're really wanting to dig into the Word of God to say, what does it mean biblically to be a, a family together on mission? And so today, we have a, a guest sharing with us, and yet in many ways, he's not a guest. Uh, for those of us who planted this church 12 and a half years ago, he was our pastor that sent us out and gave us vision and has really loved us and pastored us ever since. He's been uh, the head of our oversight board, which is in town this week. We said, hey, could you come in a few days early? And he, he meets with many people on our staff. And I said, can you share with us on what it means to be the covenant family of God? And so uh, he's here to share with us today. Welcome with me to the stage, Sean Richmond. Thankful to have you, man. Love you, bro. Get one standing ovation. Thank you. It's awesome. It is so good to be with you this morning. Do you just, when you sit and hear Joy and Travis speak, do you just kind of hear vision? Just like, ah, so thankful for their leadership and the vision that they, they share with you guys. So way to go. I want to I be a part. I really was. I was thinking, could I, could I be a child care worker by Zoom? Would that be, I could tell stories, you know, here's Papa Shad from Boston. <laughs> All right. She, she said no. You heard her say no. It doesn't work. Okay, I want to show a picture just so that you can get to know me. For those of you, the few of you who know me, most of you don't know me, um, this is my family coming up. Five, four. Anyway, so I have a family. Is it up there yet? You got it? Or should I go on? There it is. Okay, great. All right. Look at that family. Um, this, is my, uh, this is my family, and there's a couple of additions through marriage. Uh, on the right is, is my oldest daughter, Molly, uh, with her husband, Nate, and my first grandchild, little Fia Grace right there. She's a doll. My youngest son, Isaac, my daughter, Annie, my son, Jonathan, who married this summer, Cameron Hannes, who's now Cameron Richmond. There's my beautiful wife in the blue, Laura, 30 years this November. And then my son, Samuel, to my left, who just finished the, eight, the training school in Waco. I'm so proud of these these, I, I was hoping um, uh, 2023 was a big year for the Richmonds. Uh, it started off with Fia being born. She's about to turn one on the 31st. Then my son Samuel on the left graduated from high school. And then my son in the middle, Jonathan, got married. And then my daughter, Annie, who is next to Cameron, got engaged in July. And Annie just got married January 7th. So I was hoping to have a picture of my, the new wedding, but you get the June wedding. So there they are. 
Awesome. Okay, gives me encouragement as I start to preach. That picture right there is a picture of me being a grandpa. I know that you don't think that I look old enough to be a grandpa. Thank you for saying that. But I, but I am a grandpa. Um, and I'm not just a grandpa <clears throat> by natural birth, um, but I'm also a grandpa in the spirit. And I got a chance to hang out with some of my a, a granddaughter church last night, Antioch Arcadia. Give it up for Antioch Arcadia. So this church... Antioch Phoenix, the leadership church is tra- leadership for this church, as Travis was talking about, moved out, of, out here 13 years ago, 12 and a half, 13 years ago to start um, Antioch Tempe, actually, I think was the first name, right? Antioch Tempe, uh, as we were targeting the ASU campus, and it's blossomed into this beautiful church, and then you just planted a church in Arcadia. So Boston to Phoenix to Arcadia, thus grandchildren, and it was a beautiful, beautiful night last night to fellowship with that young church, those GC students, and wonderful worship, Matthew Anderson and Amanda leading with the, the Van Wise. What a beautiful congregation. Way to go, church. You have, you have continued to birth new things, and this is the kingdom of God, right, that we don't just receive life, but we give life. We extend life. And so you have planted a new, life-giving, transforming community in Arcadia, and it's going to grow, it's going to blossom, and it's going to be something to behold in the years to come. I actually, um, when I was sitting here in between services, I thought back to those first days when this church came out to do outreaches on ASU campus. Do we have any ASU students here? Come on, give it up. Be proud. Here we go. And so I'm believing, I'm just looking at this section, and congregation, I want, I want you to know that um, in Boston, we've planted five churches um, in the area. And every time we launch a church, we, um, we experience a loss. We experience um, a death in one sense because we are sending out our best so that the best can start life in a new place. Um, But you know what happens every time? Every time God renews our church with new faces, new life, new vision for what he wants to do here. And so I had a picture of this section right here. I know that we're about to go to one service where this section is going to be filled up with the first service. But I want you to believe with me that this section would be filled with ASU students. Um, If you're an ASU student, can you stand up? I I would like to just pray faith over you that you would be the seeds if you want to. If you don't want to, you can stay seated. I've got this one man right here who's saying, I will be the seed. Oh, over here. Awesome. Okay, great. Would you extend your hand out to these and believe for the family of God to afresh reach the ASU campus? Lord Jesus, we're thankful, God, for these that are here. Lord, we're asking God for a multiplication of your life on this campus. Lord, there's an inheritance in these students in this campus that you gave us 13 years ago. And Lord, we believe that that inheritance is not finished. We're asking for a new wave of freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, grad students, doctoral students, Lord, who are alive with the power of Jesus, who are reaching their campus to, to, for the students on that campus to, be know, to know you. And we're asking, Father, for a vibrant representation of that campus here in this congregation and on campus in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you. Well, um, as, 
as Travis said, there, you're in the, the midst of a vision series called One Family on Mission, and he asked me to talk about the covenant uh, family of God. And so I want to talk to you about that this morning, and I'm going to start from the end here for a second just so people don't uh, get caught up in the word covenant. When you hear the word covenant, rightly so, you should, you should feel a sense of reverence, a sense of, of holiness when we talk about God's covenant because there is an interaction happening between God and the people he is coveting with. And there is within the context of a covenant, something that God asks of us in return um, when we make, when he makes this covenant with us and we respond to his covenant initiation. And oftentimes when we think about covenant, we think about something that is not to be broken, not to be not to be done away with, but something that is permanent, something that is that is uh, agreed upon um, in a vow or a, or a, a, a commitment to one another. And so, when we talk about the covenant relationship of God within the church, we are talking about. Um, the universal body of Christ. We're talking about the body of Christ that has been birthed and united with Jesus through Christ's work on the cross, of which we are all participants of if we are brothers and if we are sons and daughters of God. Amen? When we talk about having a covenant relationship with God and one another, and we talk about this unbreakable covenant, it does not mean that if you are a part of Antioch Phoenix, you can't move on to another church. Amen? We're not talking about we're closing the doors right now in this service and the locks are on the other side and that you have to stay here for the rest of your life under obligation because you've made a covenant to this local fellowship. But as children of God, born of God, and as sons and daughters of the Father in heaven, we are brothers and sisters with one another, and if we are one brothers and sisters with one another in the body of Christ, and we've called Antioch Phoenix as the place in which we are going to walk out that relationship with the body of Christ, then those very characteristics of what it looks like to be one with the body of Christ apply here until God calls you someplace else, amen? And when he does, not when, if possibly he does, because we're hoping and praying that this is the church that you walk with for the rest of your life, because it's healthy and whole and life-giving, and you're part of making that healthy, whole, and life-giving. But if for some reason you move, or there's some reason why you move on, you are moving on with the same commitment to walk in life and love and faithfulness to this body, even if you move on to another one. Amen? We're going to get into that a little bit more, but I just want to say that so you're not, when you hear the word covenant, you're not going, oh my gosh, this is a cult. Get me out of here. He's, he's making me sign a covenant. No. What we're saying is in the body of Christ, as God initiates his covenant relationship with us, we respond. And in that place of response, there is something happening that is holy, a commitment that's happening that God is doing in and through us that happens as we become one with him and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amen? Okay, so that's the highlight. We'll go back from the end and go back to the beginning. So when we talk about covenant, when we first see covenant in Scripture, we see it in the Old Testament, and actually God makes a covenant with, and we're going to go through this quickly so that we can get to the passage of Scripture that I want to zero in on today, but there is covenant relationship with God and man throughout Scripture from the beginning of time when he created us. He created us with the purpose to partner with us. So part of a covenant is partnership. Partnering with God to walk with him 
to uh, be with him and to be stewards of what he has created in this world. So when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them for fellowship, he created them to be blessed, and he created them to partner with him in the purposes that he has. And of course, if you know the story, it pretty quickly that covenant on the human side of things was broken. That Adam and Eve disobeyed the very directives that God gave to them to walk in fellowship or covenant with him and through sin, through disobedience, they, they broke their end of the covenant. But that covenant of love and commitment and faithfulness from God didn't end there. And then later on in the scripture, he makes a covenant with Noah. When um, the world was destroyed by the flood, he makes a covenant with Noah, and he says to Noah and to us, he says, from this day forward, I will never destroy the earth in the way that I've done this, have done this time, that this will not happen again. And as a covenant sign of this promise uh, to you, he gave us the rainbow. So the rainbow actually has a different definition today, but the biblical definition of the rainbow is God's covenant to mankind that he would not destroy us again in that way. He would not destroy the earth in that way. Then we have Abraham. Then we go on and we have the Abrahamic. Oh, by the way, in the Noah Noah covenant, I I don't even know how you say it, but the covenant with Noah, Noah didn't have to do anything. It was God's covenant to mankind. It was God's blessing. At that moment in history, he said, I will never do this again. You have my word on it. Move on to Abraham. There's an Abrahamic covenant. And the blessing of God or the covenant of God to Abraham was that God would bless Abraham and his descendants. He would bless them with the inheritance of land, the inheritance of blessing, that he would bless them with his favor and his presence with them. Um, And he asked that they would just worship him and honor him and live for him in in their relationship with him. And he kept his covenant. And Abraham and his descendants didn't do that, didn't do so great, right? And we see the, the frailty or the unfaithfulness of man through that covenant, God faithful, man over time unfaithful. To Moses and the children of Israel, another covenant, God gives, God, God gives his law, his word to the people of Israel, a standard by which to live by. And he says, if you will follow these decrees or follow these commands, I will bless you. I will bless you and your children and your children's children. I'll be with you. I'll prosper you and you'll be assigned to the nations, a witness of my glory to the nations. He fulfills his covenant. Hmm, not so great on their end. Over time, they, don't, they disobey. They, they don't follow his covenant. But God's covenant to man, to Israel is faithful. Move on to David, the Davidic covenant. Same covenant, same blessing. God says, I will bless you. I'll bless your children's children. I will pour out my favor upon you. If you'll follow me, worship me, follow my commandments, serve no other gods but me. And in the Davidic covenant, and there will be one who comes from your line or lineage that will be a blessing to all of mankind. Of course, we know who that blessing is. That's Jesus. Again, God's faithfulness in his covenant of blessing and faithfulness and commitment, man's response, not so great. The prophets talk about this Messiah to come, this one that will fulfill the, the blessings of God, that will fulfill the covenant, and we get to Jesus. And Jesus is that, that last and new covenant with man in which Jesus, both God, the one who proclaims the covenant, proclaims the covenant of faithfulness and blessing upon his people, also then in turn comes to earth as a man and becomes the human fulfillment of that covenant covenant on the other end. Amen? 
So at every point along the way where man failed in its covenant to God, by disobeying, by sinning, by worshiping other gods, you name it, not adhering to what God said was the requirements or the commitments on our end of the covenant, Jesus came as God and fully man and said, I'll do it. I'll live a righteous life. I'll fulfill all the covenants of man unto God. And I, I won't only do that, but I will willingly take the consequences or the punishment of disobeying the covenant, covenant and, 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 and bear the mark of punishment in my body through death on a cross just for you and me. I will be perfect. I will fulfill the law. I'll be a representation of God's covenant to mankind, and I will die and suffer for you so that the law might be fulfilled, the covenant might be fulfilled, and through me, faith in me, anybody who believes, you can not only inherit the blessing, but you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can be empowered now by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to walk out in the fruitfulness and the faithfulness that God wanted for us in the beginning. Restored relationship, restored stewardship, restored reflection of God's glory all through us as a church. Amen? Look with me in Ephesians verse, well, actually the end of Ephesians 1 into the, into the beginning of Ephesians 2. As Paul talks about this glorious salvation that is found in Jesus, this covenant of grace where God initiated um, his promises and fulfilled them through his son, Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision... Remember that, all, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Those are the covenants that I just talked about in the Old Testament. Without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the new covenant. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, I want, you to, I want you to see this. This is the highlight of this passage of scripture. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this passage speaks of the covenant promises that we talked about in the Old Testament. But what is most powerful and revelatory in this passage is this purpose of the new covenant. That not only would I be saved as an individual, not only would I experience new life in Jesus, not only would I be dead in my sins and made alive through what Christ has done for me when I accept Jesus Christ in my life. Not only would I be given a personal vision and future and hope in Christ, but God had something more in mind than just me getting saved. Amen? Amen. He had something more than just you getting saved. In our Western individualistic church culture, it tends to be all about me. All about what I'm getting from the Lord. All about my daily quiet time. All all about my teachings that I'm listening to and the worship that I'm worshiping with. And all of that is important in my development with the the Lord. But what God is saying through Paul about Jesus' work on the earth was it was not just about one person. He's not individually just relating to you and me. It's about us. It's about creating a new humanity. It's about taking our individual lives, restoring them and renewing them and placing us into a family, into a family with a great father in heaven, a great papa who says, I love you and I want you to have a great life and I want you to have it together. Look at your neighbor and say, hello, brother and sister. I mean, don't say both of those. They're either a brother or a sister. So decide which one they are and say hello. This is your family. This is your family. This is a part of the, it's not the only family, by the way. I've got sons and daughters in my immediate family who don't live in Boston. Shame, shame. No, I'm just kidding. They don't live near me. They live in Texas. They live far away in a foreign land. Or they speak a little bit of a different language and do things differently. It's my best Bush interpretation. (laughs) But they're family. There's family all across this city meeting right now that are your brothers and sisters. There's family all across the world. There's family all across this country that love Jesus and that are worshiping Jesus that are brothers and sisters. But in this place, in this time, these are the brothers and sisters that you're relating to and you have been brought together as one new body in Christ Jesus. Isn't that crazy? It's permanent. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm stuck with you and you're stuck with me. And again, remember, I'm not talking about in this church per se. You can leave today and get away from them. But for eternity, we're together. Isn't that crazy? You and I are living together for eternity because we have been born into God's family. It can't be changed. You know, I I think about my kids when my first, you saw my first Molly was born. She had, she had it. She had both parents. We were totally attentive to her. When she cried, we came. When she needed food, we fed her. When she wanted, we were just on it. She had fellowship. It was just me, my wife, and her. She loved it. And then a second child came along. 
I don't know if you're a parent, but when a second child comes along, there's a little disruption in the force. <laughs> the oldest child goes, wait, 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 wait. What's going on? Somebody else gets attention? Somebody else gets something? And I can imagine that maybe there's a couple of different things that can happen with siblings. Of course, I am one, so maybe this comes from my own wounding. But we can either go like this. We can say, hmm, there's another kid in the family. Can we get rid of him? <laughs> I don't think there's enough room for that person in this family. And then we get a little bit older and we say, I don't want to be around you. <laughs> and then we get a little bit older and we said, I'm leaving. And we try to, in the negative sense, of a, in a family that's unhealthy, that's what it can look like. But in a healthy family, and I have one, um, at our wedding, at the wedding, we have a tradition, tradition at our weddings, and of course, my kids are almost all grown up. I've got a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old at home, and on the 20th, is it to the 22nd today? Okay, remind me, my son's birthday is tomorrow. <laughs> Somebody tell me tomorrow. But um, in our tradition at our weddings, we write songs as a family to the person who's getting married. And everybody takes a lyric and writes something usually funny. There's usually a little bit of a roast and then a little bit of a blessing. And every time we sing that, so actually every time we get together for a wedding, every time we get together for a holiday, I thank God that I have a healthy family, that siblings who love one another, and I think they know that they're loved by mom and dad and that they want to be together. Instead of saying, can we get rid of them, they're saying, hey, can we have another? Can we have another kid? Isn't that what it's about in the church? Instead of us kind of being ingrown, saying this is all, it, we're all here for just ourselves or just in for this group of people. Isn't it great when we say, let's plant a church in Arcadia. Let's get a church in Denver. Let's, let's, let's reach out. Let's, let's reach our neighbors. Let's reach the people that we go to school with. I want more people in here. I want more brothers and sisters. I need to see more of Jesus in this city because they're coming in contact with the living God. I want more father love to be poured out on more people. How many of you know as a father, I remember when I had my second child, I, I had a, uh, my, my, the pastor that was my mentor had four children, and I thought, man, that's a lot of children. I have five. And, um, but at the time, it was like a lot of children. I said, how am I going to love Annie as much as I love Molly? And he said, you know what? You don't, lose, you don't, you don't have to um, portion out your love when you're a father. You just get more love. You just have more love for more children, and that's our Father in heaven. And that's the love that flows in this room. <clears throat> All right. So he didn't just send his son to save us, but he sent, to put, he sent his son to come and put us in a family to be with one another, to love one another. This is the mystery that Paul was talking about. He talks about it in Ephesians 3. He said, this is a mystery that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharing together in the promise of Jesus. And he goes on in verse 10 and says, his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished by 
accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whatever was happening when the Gentiles, the rest of the world were pulled into the covenant blessing of God through Jesus Christ and Jesus made a way for any person, every tribe, every nation, every people, every tongue, whoever hears the word of the Lord, the opportunity to be saved and brought into the family, when that happens and we do this family thing together, it speaks something to the heavenly realms. And in this context, when the heavenlies saw that the Jews and the Gentiles were coming together, they're like, oh, how's that going to work? That's exactly what was happening. How's that going to work? This is oppressor with the oppressed. This is the rich with the poor. This is one dietary restrictions with another di- with no dietary restrictions. This is one culture with another culture. This is a train wreck ready to happen. Right? When God brings this room together, the potential for calamity is high. Opinions, posturing, culture, experiences, political divide, whatever. Mask, no mask. Oh, gosh, I'm starting to have PTSD thinking about it. (laughs) When he brings a group of people together apart from Christ, it usually results, as Ephesians 2 talks about, in division and hostility. And yet he knew that when Christ would get a hold of people's lives and he would create this new humanity of oneness with brothers and sisters, one body coming into authority with the head of head who is Jesus. When that whole body is formed beautifully, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That the very nature of destruction, division that is seen in the world would be transformed by a loving community that loves each other in spite of our weaknesses and differences. That we become this beautiful mosaic that only Jesus can bring together. But hostility and division is the story of human nature and human history. As people, our old flesh nature most easily drifts towards what? Offense, unforgiveness, judgment, pride, isolation, unrest, instead of towards encouragement, forgiveness, praise, humility, unity, peace. It's the way of sin versus the way of the cross. What does this look like today? Anybody seen any hostility in the world lately? Searching the internet this morning, I had a hard time finding it, but I came across one article about some division and hostility. (laughs) It's kind of out there, isn't it? It's kind of a way in which our world is living. Anybody seen division? Anybody seen the promotion of division? Anybody been to a youth soccer game? (laughs) to a PTA meeting. Anybody watch TV, look at social media, read blogs, or follow people on Instagram? I think it tends more towards division and hostility than it tends toward the cross and the love of God that pervades our lives that should transform us in our community. But that's out there, right? That's out there. We don't see it in the church, do we? We don't see hostility and division in the church. Not in the body of Christ, do we? I'm getting a lot of smirks. Okay, I know where this is going, Pastor. What are the problems or dangers we see in the church that we want to avoid? We, We would want 
to avoid becoming hostile and divided by worldly doctrines, by worldly lifestyles, by worldly attitudes that don't promote love and, and encouragement and union and peace, but promote the other. If, if, if what we're buying into or listening to or, or dealing out in the world is division, hostility, judgment, anger, fear, it doesn't sound much like the kingdom, does it? We would want to avoid being so shallow in our relationships with one another that we would call tolerances of all truths, lifestyles, and attitudes loving. All love but no truth. But we'd also not want to see unforgiving and judgmental attitudes towards one another emerge either. All truth and no love. We'd want to avoid being too willing to abandon one another and not persevere together. We'd want to avoid controlling one another and placing guilt on one another. These would not be the marks of the kingdom. These would not be the marks of this beautiful reflection of the glory of God that would transform society. Anybody seen this in the church? Denomination splitting, churches splitting, groups of people hiving off of churches because of certain things that they don't agree with. We want more of what God wants for us, amen? We want more, we want to move towards a biblical representation of what Christ wants in the church so that we can be that transforming agent in society. And so where, where do we find that? <clears throat> but before we go there, maybe just a little bit more of an illustration from Paul until we get to the antidote. How about Ephesians 4, 17 and following? He summarizes this in the church, this this temptation to live like the world, he describes in verse 17 and following, and I'm just going to sum it up. He says, don't live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, in the hardening of their hearts. And then he describes what that looks like. Sensuality, impurity, greed, lying, anger, stealing, crude and coarse talking, bitterness, rage, brawling, slander, malice, sexual immorality, obscenity. It's a pretty convicting list. This is significant. This is both personal, but it also has tremendous implications relationally. This is a mirror of what the world looks like. It's not a list for what the church should look like. And if the church does look like this, if it ends up looking like more of these values than the values of the kingdom, then I would say that the church is breaking its covenant with God and one another. So Lord, what do we do? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray, and this is his prayer for the church. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart's with faith, through faith. So there's that power. He's praying for that covenant power of God's sanctifying power in our life. He prays for, that the power of God might help us understand or see that Christ is rooted in us in love and that we have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This picture of when my, two people come together and they're married and God's hand grabbing their hand in their covenant to one another and saying, I'm giving you the power to love one another. 
I am committed to you by my covenant as you make a covenant to one another that we can do this. We can love in a way that the world doesn't love, church. We can be something different. What does it help the world if we look like the world? What a beautiful thing to the world when we become the loving nature of Christ. As Jesus said to his disciples before he left, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's the goal of this new humanity that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2? It's to be a manifold witness to the heavenlies and to the world that Jesus is alive. There is no greater witness than a church who is lovingly serving one another and who is coming against division and hostility through acts of service and love. Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, first of all, in Ephesians 5, he said, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And that way of love is just what Jesus said. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But Paul describes love in this way, and this is where I want to just focus our last couple of minutes, is what does love look like in the church? Very simply, love is patient. We're not quick to condemn, to judge, to be offended, but we're long-suffering with our brother and sister that we're going to live in eternity with. We're not letting the world stir us to division, but we're patient with one another. We're kind. Kind is a lost fruit of the Spirit in our world. It's not honored to be kind. We've got to be quick and clever and condemning and biting, funny. But how about kind? It does not envy. It does not boast or it's not proud. Boasting and pride. What's the flip of that? It's humble. It sees others better than itself. It's not promoting its own. We're not, I'm not promoting my own cause, but I'm promoting your cause. I'm getting behind you and building you up. It doesn't dishonor others, as, as a matter of fact. It finds ways to honor one another. I used to say, I don't care if you're talking, <clears throat> I don't care if you're talking about me behind my back, as long as you're saying something good about me. But how much not good do we talk about behind other people's backs in the name of a prayer point or a discernment or I'm just concerned about brother so-and-so? Honor. It's not self-seeking. This is a big one. It's not easily angered. Why are we easily angered? Why am I easily angered? Why would my wife say I'm easily angered? when I am zeroed in on my own concerns instead of her concerns, when I'm defending my territory instead of promoting her territory, in my insecurity, in my shame, in my fear, all these things that God wants to heal and do something in me, I bristle up. What if we were able to do the hard work of letting God heal us so that we are not easily angered but we're asking for input? We're asking for people to press in. It keeps no record of wrongs. It goes on and it says, 
<clears throat> love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Church, what would it look like if we lived like this with one another? When conflict, disagreement tempt us to be hostile and divisive, we were called to go deeper in relationship instead of pulling away and sabotaging relationship. Amen? It's extremely sad to me when I see good friends, lifelong friends, part ways in the church. I'm talking about Christians right now over an opinion, a stance. Well, if you don't believe the way I do, you just must not be good enough to be a friend of mine. Well, we can disagree and still be friends, can't we? If we're in the body of Christ, we can still love one another, can't we? What if we don't really know the heart of another person? Isn't it, isn't it on us to understand and to dwell in understanding? Hear me, some of the things that divide us are serious issues that the church needs to address. We're always working through it as a family, right? As a family, we work through issues. So if there's a problem, if there's an error, if there's an offense and those happen, it's not like we overlook them but we move in towards a person, not away. And this is where Paul goes on and talks about a prescription for that in Ephesians 4. He said, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become every, in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, from him, the whole body, joined together, that's us, held together by every supporting ligament, that's us, grows and builds itself up in love as each of us, each part does its work. We press in with love. We speak the truth in love. We receive the truth in love. We persevere. We love. This is a long life. You're going to be on either side of the truth-telling Amen? Anybody married? You're going to be on either side. If you're pressing in to covenantal relationship with one another, you're going to be on either side of needing to hear the truth or speak the truth. The key is love. The key is what is our goal in speaking and hearing. If we really want the best for one another, we really want to make it to the other side. We really want to hear and love. We really want to be the body of Christ that transforms society. Then we're willing to go there. We're willing to stay there until we work it out. Until we love each other well. And if at some measure or some degree after loving each other well, we can't walk together, then we do that in love. Amen? Not casting a stone, not speaking ill on one another, but blessing and loving. If we're doing something else, that's not the kingdom. That's not Jesus. We can't speak the truth in love if we can't receive the truth in love. Let me just say that again. If you're a really good truth speaker, but when anybody ever confronts you, you bristle up and you get defensive, you're not a really good truth speaker. You just say things. You're only a good truth and love speaker if you can receive it in love and give it in love. Humility precedes truth-telling. Spec work precedes log work. 
Love precedes truth. If it's to tear down, humiliate, force to change, give an ultimatum, serve our sense of right and wrong and make them come to our conclusion, it is truth without love. But if it's filled with a desire for that person to have the best life they can have and I want to walk with them in it, then we can go somewhere. Amen? I love the lyrics of Kristen DeMarco, a worship leader from Bethel, to maybe prophetically challenge us in how this kind of thought might work in our lives. So listen to these lyrics. What if Jesus is just smiling? When I think down here, I must know everything. What if my views don't reflect his fullness and there's still so much more of heaven yet to see? What if trusting him is what he's looking for? Would that be good enough? Would that be good enough for me? What if Jesus sees what I miss and he does not share all my thoughts on politics? What if his body bridges these chasms that I've dug out in my own self-righteousness? And what if people I don't agree with are the same ones pouring their perfume on his feet? What if Jesus gets the whole of his reward? Would that be beautiful? Beautiful to me? What if Jesus desires mercy while I'm busy judging others for their deeds? Because if I have his heart and friendship, then I must know he loves liars and thieves. What if I spend life in his vineyard and at midnight he redeems my enemies? What if trusting him is what he's looking for? Would that be good enough? Good enough for me? What if Jesus' wedding table holds the people that have hurt and wounded me? And what if I'm seated in the middle while at the head are some who've only just believed? Oh, what if after all I've been through, everyone gets the same he promised me? What if Jesus alone is my reward? He would be good enough, good enough for me. He'd be more than good enough for me. Guys, the Father in heaven, his son Jesus, the Holy Spirit, this is a God of love. It's a God of mercy. It's a God of grace. And he's inviting us in as his sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters, to love one another deeply and to be an example to the world of something they can't see apart from Christ. And when they do, wow, what a revelation of Jesus you will be, we will be. The last part of Ephesians, and I'll conclude with this, the last part of Ephesians in Ephesians 6, Paul warns the church, hey, this thing I'm talking about here, Jesus Christ crucified and salvation and this new humanity, Jews and Gentiles becoming one and the reflection of this loving family of God to the world, it's big stuff and the devil doesn't like it. And he's coming after you, the church, because he doesn't want this to succeed. Anybody experienced that or seen that in the body of Christ? And Paul says, you need to put on the armor of God. Truth, faith, salvation, the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit. You need to be equipped. And the last thing he says is you need to pray. Pray. Pray for all the saints. 
pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all Lord's people. All the Lord's people. Is there somebody in this room that you have a problem with who is a brother or sister in the Lord who's offended you or who is doing something that you feel like you, you just don't think is right or good? Is there a problem that you have in this church with your brothers and sisters? The first thing I would encourage you to do is pray for them. We pray for those. When we pray for people with God's heart, we love them. We start to see with God's heart and his eyes. So I want you to pray for one another. And it might be that it's not within this local fellowship, but it might be the body of Christ. But I want us to be a people who love, speak the truth in love, and pray. I'll close with this, these questions, and I'll have Travis come up. What if we fully understood and lived out this reality that I'm talking about, that Paul is talking about, day by day, that Jesus has called us into a covenant with him and his church, his body, and one another? What if we took seriously the way of love and resisted the way of the world and pressed in to one another instead of running away? What if? What if when, we, when problems arise, we loved, we prayed, we received, we, we spoke the truth and loved? What if we loved as Christ loved us? This local church would be like a city on a hill for all to marvel at. This church would be healthy, be transforming and healing. And I'm not saying you aren't. You probably are. You would be this amazing, attractive church that people want to visit to find Jesus. And this local church would bring, bring unity to the body of Christ and walk in loving relationship. Even those who left or that you left, who had different doctrines but loved Jesus and are a part of his family, there would be something powerful that's happening in the city and grace and healing would flow to the public arena in every sphere of society. We would bring a refreshing difference to the conversation in the way of doing things. Amen? Can we pray? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are a covenant God and that you didn't promise something that you haven't fulfilled or that you won't fulfill. Thank you that you don't break your promises, that your covenant to us, a blessing of life forevermore, relationship with you, the riches of, of all the inheritance in you, you have promised and you have given us access to through Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you for this body. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. A beautiful new humanity created by you to display your glory. Lord, would you stir us with a fresh zeal to be that kind of people? Would you stir us with a fresh zeal to love, to speak the truth in love, to receive the truth in love, to pray for one another and to walk united in spirit? Convict us where we need conviction. Stir us where we need stirring. Fill us up, Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.